Welcome to Commons and Chronicles, the podcast where we talk about all the best creative commons and reusable open game license content. If you need resources for your creative writing, game design, or you just love lore, Commons and Chronicles is for you. Hi everyone, this is Klaatu. You're listening to Chronicles and Commons. In this episode, I want to talk about a booklet by Super Genius Games. I've covered some content from Super Genius Games, the Winter Magic specifically, from episode 052. And before I get into the content that I want to cover this time around, I want to kind of mention and reiterate some of the stuff that I was talking about in a very, very early episode that if you're a new listener, you may not have bothered to go that far back. But it is, I'm looking right now as I speak, it's episode uh, 3, episode 03, in which I discuss the open game license. And I'm going to kind of reiterate a little bit of that right now, because it's it, there, there are some distinctions that that I think maybe need to be clarified. So first of all, a game can use the open game license as a way to make the content in a resource open for reuse. The resource might be anything. It could be a campaign, it could be a source book, whatever. Now, the open game license is a way for the publisher, or the creator rather, the copyright holder, to to give exemptions to their natural copyright that says you cannot reuse anything. The open game license gives an exemption to that and says, well, actually you can use this stuff. And the structure of the open game license is that it is assumed that everything except anything defined as a product identity can be reused. So if you're using the open game license and you want things to be reused out of your out of your resource, you must you must define what your product identity is. In other words, the open game license sort of opens a floodgate and says, "Okay, you can reuse everything in this volume, except, it says, anything designated as product identity. But you, as the publisher and the creator, must then switch back on what's a product identity. And that can be a little bit confusing if you're not familiar with the open game license. From both sides of the the table, you could, as a user, think, oh, this is open game license, therefore I can use everything. And that's not quite true, because there might be a product identity exemption to this being open. You also might be a publisher and think, okay, well, I'll slap the open game license on there and think, okay, well, now, so, you know, the, the, the important bits can be used. Well, that's not true. Everything can be reused unless you define what product licenses, what a product license is. And that's why in some books you'll see the open game license in the back and maybe in the front or, or maybe in the back with the license, you'll also see a list of what is called product identity, and there might be things like monster names, the names of gods, the names of characters, and so on. It can even be as granular as any story element, which which renders basically the open game licensable content as really just the numbers. It's, it's the stat block of a thing that you may not call this thing, because that's product identity you can call it something else. Now, there are some weird exemptions there as well, because even if a publisher puts out a book that has stats, let's say, for a ghoul, and then in the product identity says, you can't use the names of any of the monsters, I, I can't see how it would be enforceable. You know, they certainly don't have the right 
to say that you're not able to use the term ghoul, obviously, or, or zombie, unless, of course, they gave that a, a very peculiar name that is recognizable. So if they have a made-up fantasy land called Githa, and they call this a zombie of Githa, or a Githa zombie, a Githan zombie, something like that, then using that name is obviously clearly part of their product identity, and, and especially using that name plus that stat block would be would be a clear violation if they'd said all monster names are off-limits. You can rename that stat block to a zombie of, from your own land, or, or just a generic name like Acid Zombie, and then use that stat block permissibly under the open game license. So I wanted to clarify that because I cover a couple of different kinds of content on this show, but I try to favor and lean towards the more open content. Like the gods of Porphyra, all of that is open content. The story elements, the names of the gods, and that's kind of what makes it so unique, is that it is not only open game licensed, but it's it's actually creative commons licensed. So you can use all elements from that freely, with no variation. You just give them credit for their for their work, and everybody wins. So I want to highlight, I guess, super super genius games here because their content is open game license and their product identity definition is is frankly just paltry. It it it, it doesn't reserve a whole lot at all. They they are happy generally to let you use spell names, monster names, everything that they've come up with, they define as free for you to use. The only product identity that they hold onto, really, is the name, you know, their company name, their, um, their logos, the, the, the actual name of the, of the book that they, of they put, that they put out, and all the artwork, and the backgrounds, and the trade dress, and the, the layout, you know, all the physical labor that, that went into it. But in terms of you being able to reuse the, the ideas that they're generating, it's all open, uh, and, and quite open at that. So I just kind of wanted to highlight that fact about Super Genius Games and encourage you, uh, if you see some of their products online for sale, then purchase it, because it is, it's really, really good stuff, as you'll soon find out. I mean, if you heard the Winter Magic episode, you already kind of know that, that it's good stuff, but this, this other booklet that I'm going to be reviewing today is also good stuff, and it is among the Super Genius, it is among the most open content available. So now that that's clear, Let's talk a little bit about haunts. A haunt, A-H-A-U-N-T, a haunt is something that Paizo introduced in their Game Mastery Guide for Pathfinder. And a haunt is a little bit like a trap, except that it is obviously metaphysical, and it doesn't, it's not a one-for-one relationship. A trap usually means that if if a condition is met, then an event occurs, and the event is usually horrible and violent and destructive. A haunt is a region, a small region, that is triggered by usually some kind of invasion, or maybe by suffering, or something like that. So if you think of a haunted house, the the haunted house is not one haunt. It is a variety of haunts in, in a house. So you might have an undead butler who is awakened, or the spirit of an undead butler, that is awakened if you invade the hallway closet and remove the treasure that you find there. In the sitting room, on the other hand, 
you might have some stuffed, uh, some taxidermied animals that come alive and attack you if you, um, I don't know, extinguish a magical candle that is there, or that if you light a candle, who knows. So, or, or if something dies in that space, then they come alive and attack the thing that killed the, the, the thing that died. Whatever it might be, you have several little haunts within a, within a concentrated area. So a haunt can be a, as, as big as a trap, in other words, or it can be larger, and it can have basically any, any effect. Anything that, that you can generate from the Pathfinder system can be triggered by a haunt. Haunts are difficult to detect because they are not traps. They are not physical traps that someone set up. These are metaphysical manifestations of, of something. Now, mechanically, Paizo in the Game Mastery Guide, this is on page 242, yeah, 242 in, in, in case you have it on hand, but uh, the haunts, you can have a, uh, you can let a character attempt to detect it with the relevant detect undead or detect alignment type of, of check. But if the haunt has not yet manifested, then there is a negative four penalty to that check. A neutralized haunt is not destroyed, and it can manifest again after some period of time. Uh, to destroy a haunt, a specific action must be taken in that region to end the effect forever such as burning a haunted house to the ground, or burying bones of slaves who died on the site uh, and putting them to, to rest in the ground. All the usual things you would expect for a haunted area. Curiously, the Game Mastery Guide does not mention in any way that I could find what effect a Consecrate spell would have on a haunted region. Now, I have a really hard time imagining that Consecrate, uh, a Consecrated area would suddenly spring to life, as it were, or undead life, in any circumstance. So I have to assume that a Consecrate spell would render the haunt inert. Maybe it wouldn't actually, you know, it would suppress it. Maybe it wouldn't do away with it, but it would suppress it for as long as the Consecrate spell was in, was in place. And if someone came along and, and undid that spell, then assuming, I, I assume the haunt would, would be active again and could manifest at whatever trigger it, it requires. So on page 243 of the Game Mastery Guide, there is a, a, quite a, a detailed look on how, to, on how to create a haunt for a game. And wouldn't you know, Super Genius game, Games uh, took it upon themselves to create some new haunts. And some of them are really, really good. And I'd like to kind of cover some of them, because these this is a unique system that I don't think everyone knows about, and, and I think that it's one of those nice little variants. Uh, you know, at a, at a glance, a haunt is just a trap. It's just a, 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 a silly name for, for what amounts to a trap. And yet, it's different enough to throw your players for, for a loop, and to possibly uh, make something that, that could have been kind of routine seem new and fresh. And story-wise, who doesn't like a haunt? I mean, it's so atmospheric. It, it, adds, it adds not only the, the mood that you might be looking for, but it, it adds that coveted implied backstory. The stuff of, of uh, you know, the, the, the little story tidbits that, that, that get dropped whenever you meet a new character and you wonder where they came from and how much more effective that is is when you meet a, a dead 
character and wonder why they're dead, why they're unhappy, why they're haunting this area. You may never find out. So their CR4 haunt is a is called the Bruja Cauldron. That's B-R-U-J-A Cauldron. Uh, this is from, by the way, Super Genius Games' Horrific Haunts. The Bruja Cauldron is a haunt tied to an object, generally a large cauldron used by a coven of hags or witches for brewing poisons and potions. When a hag in the coven dies, he or she is boiled within the cauldron and fed to the other members of the coven. The spirits of the consumed witches remain bound to the cauldron, though, and can be called upon to grant their powers to others. Stat blocks for haunts are, are a little bit unique. They have some, some traits that, that you certainly wouldn't expect in a, a stat block from a trap or, or a person, but I think you'll get the idea. So the experience points uh, assignable for, for this cauldron is 1,200. So it's probably about 300 each, uh, assuming a party of four, obviously. It is chaotic evil. It is a persistent haunt, and it has an effect within 20 feet, a uh, 20 foot radius around the cauldron. Caster level is four, and to notice this haunt, the notice uh, conditions are knowledge arcana or knowledge history to recognize the runes and stains on the cauldron. The cauldron has hit points eight. Its trigger is that it must be touched, and it it resets in one hour. The effect is that a Bruya cauldron grants a creature that touches it and names one of the hags or witches that have been boiled within it, w within it the power to use an evil eye hex, save DC 13 for three rounds. It is most often kept in a coven's most secure meeting place, allowing the hags that own it additional options if attacked. But such a cauldron could f fall into the creatures of uh, the hands of other creatures as well. So, oh, to cleanse, or to destroy, rather, the cauldron, to cleanse it, you must clean it with a silver scraper, holy water, and acid. So that's to render it completely useless into just a normal, a normal cauldron again. As written, this cauldron is, is technically pretty specific to witches. I mean, the, the bonus that it grants uh, when touching it and naming one of the hags or witches that were, was boiled inside of it is a, a hex, which is a spell within just Pathfinder for witches. So, as written, it's very specific. In practice, of course, it doesn't really matter. You could do whatever you want. The Evil Eye Hex itself, just so that you know, for CR4, the Evil Eye Hex happens to be a minus two penalty imposed on, on I think, one target. Yeah, one target. Uh, a minus two penalty on, and this is the witch's, who, the, the witch's choice, the caster's choice, either AC... Ability checks, attack rolls, saving throws, or skill checks. The hex lasts for, as the haunt specified, for three rounds, plus the witch's intelligence modifier. A will save reduces it to one round. It's a mind-affecting uh, effect, and at eighth level, the penalty increases to a negative four. So this isn't by any means an encounter breaker. It's not going to completely change the tides of, a, of an encounter, Although, that said, you're, you're looking at a CR4, so we're assuming that the average party level here is 4, and a negative 2 to a, a level 4 character on, on, on something that they're relying on, that can hurt, and it makes a seemingly innocent sort of stock cauldron that you'd expect to find in any witch's hideout a lot more exciting. Another one that they've got is the Drowned Doxy. This haunt mostly commonly occurs when someone is drowned by a trusted friend or loved one, 
and their body is weighted down and left in the water. It might be someone drowning an inconvenient lover who threatens to jeopardize their marriage, or a mother who drowns her child, or an innocent bystander who happened to witness a crime. Normally, a knowledge local check will reveal at least a mythical version of this event that created the drowned Doxy haunt, though the details required to put the haunt at ease may require the guilty party to be questioned and forced to confess, or the discovery of private diaries where the true nature of events was recorded. So this, this kind of haunt has XP 4800 assigned to it. It is a CR 8, and the caster level is 8. It is a lawful evil haunt, persistent, and it its effect is a 40-foot radius. The caster level is 8, I think I said that already. Notice, to notice this, you uh, it requires a knowledge nature, DC 20, to see the unnatural flow of water. Now, noticing is different than the knowledge local required, or not required, but that, that would betray like the local tale of this event happening. But to detect the actual haunt requires knowledge nature. The haunt has hit points of 16, and its trigger is, is listed as cyclic proximity, male only. When, when triggered, the drowned doxy creates an illusion of an attractive young woman wandering by the edge of the water, who then appears to be attacked by something that tries to drag her, most often seaweed or merfolk, into the water. That acts as a major image save of DC-15 if the character interacts with it. If no one interacts with the image, the young woman appears to drown and then sink into the inky depth of the wa depths of the water. If anyone comes within five feet of the illusion... The haunt illusion grabs the creature and drags it into the water. Well, that's a fantastic scenario, but I see no reason to constrain that to to a male trigger. I, I think that that would be triggered by anyone, really, because anyone in their right mind is going to try to go help a drowning person. I mean, unless they're unless they're evil, possibly neutral, but but surely most adventurers would go would, would try to help someone who's being dragged into the water by an evil force. So the effect is a drowned doxy haunt normally has a wandering location showing up in random sections of the body of water in which the original victim was killed. A drowned doxy haunt only triggers during the same phase of the moon when the original victim died and only triggers if a male humanoid enters its current haunt area. That is obviously what the term cyclic proximity was referring to. But again, I wouldn't limit it to a, a male humanoid. That's that's silly. It would just be any creature. Okay, and then finally, the uh, the final haunt that they came up with is uh, quite a high-level one. It's called the In Unending Laboratory, CR 16. When an alchemist or spellcaster dedicates a laboratory to creating golems, Sometimes shreds of the elemental spirits of animation used to power golems built there infuse the laboratory itself. The tools, forges, and walls themselves take on a life of their own. Long after its master has passed on, the unending laboratory continues to create new golems at the peaks of each season. Experience points 76,800. It's chaotic, neutral, persistent haunt. It's one large room up to 80 feet radius. Caster level is 16. To notice this, a craft alchemy or knowledge engineering DC 30 recognizes the pieces of the laboratory that are self-willed and notice that they're acting on their own rather than just being set in motion by a now absent owner. Hit points is 32. Trigger is cyclic and proximity. It resets once a month. The effect. 
even when not triggered, a haunt, an, an unending laboratory haunt, produces one random golem every season. These golems are from CR4 to CR16, lacking any purpose or commands from their mindless creator, simply wander about attacking everything they encounter. Treat them as berserk, as the flesh golem's special quality in every encounter. In 25% of the cases, the golems take any prepared materials they find, smelted ore, cut stone, bulk cloth or chain, timber, and carry it back to the laboratory for use in the creation of more golems. In addition to this, if creatures enter the laboratory and attack it, dealing damage or taking tools and materials, the, labor the laboratory's crucibles, burners, forges, raw materials, and tables join together to form a massive cannon golem. Alternatively, when attacked, the laboratory can form into two brass golems, three iron golems, four clockwork golems, or six stone golems. The laboratory can react in this way only once a month, and these golems wander away once the threat to the haunt ends. To destroy an unending laboratory, it must be directly attacked, and every golem it creates to defend itself destroyed. If a single golem escapes their, this con confrontation, it finds a new location and begins, and, and begins scavenging parts to construct a new unending laboratory which will be a fully functional haunt within three months. I really like this one. I think it's, it's quite ingenious. Actually, I like all of these haunts. That's why I'm talking about them on the show. But, but this one has that, that inherent sense of age to it. This owner of a laboratory who's, who's, who's no longer around, but the laboratory just keeps going on by itself. I do feel like once a month to produce a golem is a little bit much. I feel like the earth would be crawling with golems if that was if that was the case. So I would I would I would make this much much longer, I think. Rather than every month it producing a golem, it would be maybe every year or heck every leap year. I'm not sure because I I feel like it really needs to be a rare thing in order for this to have the appropriate amount of age that I think I want my abandoned places to have. I mean, if you think about it, if the thing is only 20 years old, which in the grand scheme of things isn't even that old, but 20 years is, is a pretty good amount of time, I guess. But I mean, if it was monthly, you'd have, it, it would have produced two, 240 golems wandering around, presumably the immediate area. You'd think that villagers would notice and call for help way before 20 years has gone by. So I, I feel like monthly is definitely too rapid for this process. That said, it's a, a really fun little haunt. It's a great idea, very unique, and, and I think it would be quite the challenge to encounter six stone golems or four iron golems all of a sudden, and you're kind of wondering where they came from and why they're wandering around, destroying things randomly. And what what are they doing with all that timber that they're collecting? Why do they why do tim why do golems need need timber or 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 why are they stealing the iron ore from the nearby mine? That sort of thing. Uh, it's a great it's an adventure hook all in itself. So I, I think I think you've hit upon something when you've got a a haunt or a trap that itself could be the reason for an adventure. That's everything. That's that's actually the entire booklet. The super genius booklets tend to be rather small, but obviously quite powerful. So again, if you see them online for sale at opengamingstore.com or drivethroughrpg.com, do go purchase them. They are well worth it, and as I have said, they're some of the most open content you can purchase. So 
in terms of reusability, it's really, really easy. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me uh, via email at klaatu at member.fsf.org. You can also usually catch me in IRC as not Klaatu. I'm on the Freenode Network. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.